After last Sunday's message, I remarked to Jan that I'd gotten through an entire message about running the race and running without mentioning one of my heroes in the faith, Eric Little. Well, I've got to mention him this morning. <laughs> Eric is most famous for refusing to run in the 100-meter heat in the 1924 Olympic Games because that heat was held on a Sunday. And he believed that it would dishonor God to run on the Lord's day. But he did go on to win the 400 meters in record time and became the hero of millions of people around the world. And his story has been made famous in the Academy Award-winning movie, Chariots of Fire. But the year before the Olympic Games in 1923, the competing teams of Scotland, of which Eric Little ran for, and France were neck and neck in the standings. The winner of the next couple of races would determine the winning nation in that meet. And among the events remaining was the 400 meters. As the runners clad in the traditional 1920s white came to the first turn, they were bunched tight shoulder to shoulder around the turn, and one of them was pushed clear to the ground and clear off the track. It was Eric Little. For a second he was down, and then he got up again running. He was 20 meters behind, but with his knees held high and his head thrown back in typical style for him, he was flying, and as the leaders passed the finish line, he emerged ahead to win. It was one of the most famous wins in all of track history. But sadly, when runners are knocked down, they seldom win, and often they're too injured to get up. In 1984, I remember watching TV, it was the Olympic Games in, in Los Angeles, and at that Games was the most infamous spill in track history, it came in the women's 3,000 meters. The American favorite was Mary Decker Slaney, who was slated to win the gold medal. But she got tangled up with the barefoot Zola Budd. And Slaney collapsed on the field with a hip injury that she said made her feel like she was tied to the ground. And she cried in severe pain. Slaney couldn't continue, and Bud was roundly booed by the American crowd as she slipped back into seventh place. There are still arguments today about who was to blame for that. Almost no one remembers the winner of the race. I don't even know if I can pronounce it. Marcus Siapuica of Romania. <laughs> now where Eric Little was able to forget what lies behind and reach forward to what lies ahead, Mary Dacre Slaney wasn't because she was too badly injured. In Philippians chapter 3, we find the Apostle Paul moved to tears in verse 18. In Philippians chapter 3, Verse 18, he writes, I tell you now even weeping. If Paul were writing this with his own hand, you could see the teardrops plopping onto the parchment. You could see the tremor in his hand. If he were dictating the letter, which is probably more likely dictating it maybe to Epaphras or Timothy or somebody, you could hear the sobs, you could hear his voice crack as he says this. The word translated weeping comes from a word that means to weep or to cry on account of pain. This is severe emotional grief felt by the apostle that's expressed vocally. And what brought such pain to the apostle as he writing this letter to the beloved Philippians? 
It was the thought that his fellow believers would be fallen racers in the Christian life. That some would fall and maybe even couldn't get up. That they'd be taken out, they'd be taken down, that they would not be able to press on. So if you haven't already, please turn to the tear-stained pages of Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. In verses 17 through 21 of the third chapter of Philippians, the Apostle Paul is telling us, his readers, and then telling us how to reach for the prize, how to run the race, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. And in running the race, he tells us, first of all, who we are to follow. Then he tells us who we are to watch out for. And then he tells us what we eagerly await. Verse 17 of Philippians chapter 3, we see who we are to follow. He says, brethren, join in following my example. That word following is, the root word has become familiar to us in Paul's writing. The root word is mimites. We get the word mimic from it, to imitate. Here the full word is sum mimites, which means to be fellow imitators, fellow mimics. Paul is exhorting us, as he has done elsewhere, to be a, as he said before, a fellow imitator of me as I imitate Christ. Let's imitate Christ together on this track of life. We're together in our imitation of Jesus Christ. Paul was encouraging the Philippians to follow him, who we know is an imperfect sinner. He's already admitted to that. But to follow him as he pursues the goal of Christ-likeness. In a single word, what could we say the goal of the Christian is? What is God's goal for us? And in a single word, it's Christ-likeness. What is the goal as we run the race of life? What is the goal as we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? The goal is to become more and more like Jesus. So turn back to Romans chapter 8 for a minute. The 8th chapter of Romans, that beloved verse we see in verse 28, we're going to be looking at verses... 28 and 29. Everybody knows Romans 8, 28, right? That great promise. The 28th verse of Romans chapter 8. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And so what is that purpose, Paul? What is that purpose to which God has called us, in which all things work together for good? He tells us in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become, and there it is, conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. God's express goal for every one of us as believers in Jesus Christ, every one of us as his children, is to conform us to the image of his son, to make us more and more like Jesus Christ. You ever wondered, why doesn't God take us home immediately when we become a Christian? Why doesn't he just take us to heaven when we receive Christ? Because he wants us to be more like Christ when we get there than we are now. Some cases, a whole lot more. Probably most cases. Why do we have to go through troubles? Why do we have to go through trials and tribulations? Why do we have to run this race? Because in the process, the Holy Spirit is making us more and more like the Savior. So what does Christ-likeness look like? How do we know what we're trying to achieve? 
As we run the race, what's our focus supposed to be? And, and Paul tells us that in the second part of Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Verse 17 of Philippians chapter 3 again. He says, Brethren, join in following my example, be assumimites with me, and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. I like that word observe. The Greek word is skopeo. Scopio. We get the word scope from it. In other words, scope them out. Watch out. Scope out those who are living a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you see these people, scope them out and walk according to their pattern, Paul says, as you have it in us. In the letter to the Philippians, Paul has already lifted up several examples of believers that could be and should be imitated to the extent that they imitate Christ. First of all, we had Paul himself, then Timothy, then Epaphroditus. Timothy was a kindred spirit of Paul who was of proven worth. Paul said, follow his example. Epaphroditus was a fellow believer from Philippi who almost died on account of his service to Jesus Christ and to Paul. Paul would say, follow his example. Paul realized that believers in every time and place, wherever we live, whatever generation we live in, We need godly examples of godly living if we are to reach forward to reach for the prize. So what does it look like? Whose example can I follow? We all know that we learn by watching others. Young Johann Sebastian Bach was a studied observer of a great organist and composer named Dietrich Butzenhude, a German, of course, And Bach made, as a young man, repeated long trips on foot to Buxenhude's church to observe and hear the master. And he even copied some of the composer's scores by hand, all of which had a marked effect on Bach's style and vitality in the shaping of his brilliance. Bach surpassed the brilliance and the genius of Buxenhude, but he rode on the lesser genius an example of his mentor. Now I can tell you from observation, scoping these guys out, watching and listening to three men in particular, I can tell you for certain, and he would tell you the same thing, that Chuck Swindoll would not be the preacher he is today without his observation and following the example of men like Dr. Howard Hendricks and Dr. Dwight Pentecost and others. Chuck Swindoll's statement where he once said that there are only two things that are eternal in this world, people in the word of God, and everything else is going to pass away. That statement was instrumental to my call to the ministry. Then he asked, how are you spending your time and your gifts in those things that are eternal, that really matter, that are going to last forever? People in the word of God. And that was the statement that said, I've got to go into the ministry. Well, the first time I met Dr. Howard Hendricks at a conference in Boise, I had to share, I had a chance to share with Dr. Hendricks at lunchtime uh, at the conference what he and Dr. Swindoll, what they had meant to my call to the ministry and, and their part in my ministry. And I shared Dr. Swindoll's statement with him that there's only two things eternal, people in the Word of God and how God used that. And Dr. Hendricks shook my hand and said, thank you, brother, I appreciate you telling me. And he just smiled and looked at me. What I didn't know was that Dr. Hendricks had already planned to open the afternoon session with that very same thought. 
In typical fashion, Prof, as we called him, began the afternoon session, God is only going to take two things off the planet, people and the Word of God. And all of a sudden hit me, it wasn't original with Dr. Swindoll. He had got it from Howard Hendricks, who probably got it from somebody else that he followed, who got it out of Scripture, of course. You know, I want to say this as clearly and directly as possible. If you don't have examples of godly living, people that you're trying to imitate and follow their example in Christ, if you're not scoping out godly men and women, either by watching them personally or reading about them or studying their lives, you're either stagnated in the Christian life or you have fallen and you can't get up. Because for the Apostle Paul, that is the issue here. And secondly, he says we run the race. He says to watch out for the enemies. Verse 18 of Philippians chapter 3. Watch out for those who would try to trip you up. Verse 18, for many walk, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Now, when we think of the enemies of the cross of Christ, what do we normally think of? Maybe we think of Islam or the Muslims. We might think of of atheists like Madeleine Murray O'Hare who, who spent many years trying to do so much damage and tried to do undo Christianity. Or we might think of the bias of the mainstream media and how they portray Christians and Christian causes. Or we might think of how they ignore Christian causes like 35,000 Christian refugees from Mosul just this last week and we didn't see that on the news. Or we might think of those who are trying to destroy the freedoms that we enjoy or have in our own country. And Paul had none of these in mind when he talked about the enemies of the cross because he referred to them as those he has often mentioned. He is clear in his letter that he's talking about those who claim to be Christians, who profess to be Christians, but are not. They are the wolves in sheep's clothing seeking to devour the flock, they are what he calls the evil workers, the dogs, the false circumcision. Paul describes these false teachers as enemies of the cross. They are the ones who throw the stumbling blocks out in front of you. They're trying to get you to keep their legalistic rules, trying to trip you up. They try to trip you up, and when they do trip you up, then they fill you full of guilt and say, well, that's your own fault because you couldn't keep to it. According to Jesus, they judge you by a standard that they're not even able to measure up to. They set their own self-styled standard, and then they presume to, presume to stand on it, and then they point their bony finger down at everybody else and say, you're not living up to my standard. And Jesus said they will be judged by their own standard of measure that they cannot even keep. Paul wrote in Philippians 3.19, he says... Their end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. The enemies of the cross also include the false teachers who confuse heaven's glories with earthly things. They want you to set your mind on earthly things, what you can get, how much you have enough faith of your own to get, what you can get with it. And they'll tell you that you've got to believe God for certain things. And when you do believe God for certain things, you will get those things if you just have enough faith. And if you don't get it, you don't get your healing, you don't get this. It's your 
fault? Literally, Paul says their God is their stomach. They have appetites for more and more things that they think will leave people satisfied, make them more spiritual, and it becomes a physical obesity that gets away in a spiritual in the way of a spiritual race. And I believe that Paul is moved to painful tears over this for two reasons. Number one, because the false teachers are knocking Christians down and leaving them littered all over the track. But I also believe that Paul is weeping for these people who have gotten it so wrong and spread their false teaching. In Paul's day, these people had faces and names that the Philippians and Paul were familiar with. These were people they had worshipped with, they had prayed with them, they had been beloved by the Philippians, and Paul warned the Ephesians even that the wolves would arise from where? With, from among themselves, people they know, people they go to potlucks with. That's where the wolves are coming from. It's not merely the pleasures of the stomach that was their God, but it's the, the bodily desires and sensual desires that displaced the divine, and became their God. Kent Hughes of Wheaton Bible Church says it this way. The Philippian apostates were digging their graves with their own teeth, and they chewed upon their earthbound impulses and with the cud of personal pleasure. The pursuit of creature comforts displaced the pursuit of Christ and the cross, unquote. And this is what broke the apostles' heart because they were so misguided. And we see the same thing today, professed Christians whose own physical and personal needs come before the Lord, whose bodily comforts, what and where he eats, how and where he lives, what he spends to satisfy his own desires, displace the cross. And when this happens, we need to take note because the God has become the belly. We need to be aware of any pleasure that impedes our passionate pursuit of Jesus Christ. And so in reaching for the goal, we are to follow godly examples. We are to watch out for enemies of the cross. And we are to eagerly await. In verses 20 through 21 of Philippians chapter 3, Paul reminds us once again of the goal. He reminds us of what awaits us at the finish line. Verse 20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. And here Paul's going to give us a plethora of things, a bunch of things which we have to look forward to when we cross the finish line, when we reach towards the prize. This is why we can get up when we get knocked down. Anybody been knocked down lately? This is why we can change our direction when we've been going the wrong direction. Anybody been going the wrong direction lately? This is why we can continue when all the wind and all the want to has been knocked out of us. This is why we can get up and we can reach towards the prize. No matter where you find yourself at this moment in your life, if you fix your eyes on Jesus, this is what you have to look forward to. The first is our names are written on heaven's record. Our citizenship is in heaven. 
The word translated citizenship, I know I've thrown a lot of Greek words at you this morning, but these are cool, is polituma. We get the word politics from it. Our politics are in heaven. Next time somebody asks you about politics, I say, well, my politics are in heaven. Just see how they respond to that. Polituma has to do with one's behavior as a citizen of a nation. Paul was encouraging us to have the mind of Christ, to have the thinking of Christ, to live as is true, our citizenship is in heaven. Just as Philippi was a colony of Rome on foreign soil, the church is a colony of heaven on earth. You know, we watch Star Trek, and we watch those science fiction movies, and they're putting colonies here and colonies there on other planets. And, you know, the church, we here are a colony of heaven. The citizens of Philippi were privileged to be Roman citizens, even though they were away from Rome. When a baby was born in Philippi, it was important that his name or its name be registered on the legal records. In the same way, when the lost sinner trusts in Jesus Christ for salvation, becomes a citizen in heaven, his or her name is written down in the book of life. And in fact, just three verses down, Paul's going to mention that here in Philippians. So citizenship is important. When you travel to another country, it's essential that you have a passport that proves your citizenship. The Christian's name is written in the book of life. And that is what determines his or her entrance into the heavenly country. When you confess Christ on earth, Jesus said, he confesses your name in heaven. Your name is written down in heaven according to Luke chapter 10 verse 20. It stands written forever. The Greek word written there is in the perfect tense, meaning it's a once for all written that stands written forever. Once your name is written down in heaven there's no way that anybody can come along and erase that. And a second motivation, inclination to run the race and reach forward the prize is that we eagerly wait for a Savior. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 again. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The false teachers in Philippi were trying to get the believers as they were doing to live in the past tense, trying to get the Philippian believers to go back to Moses, to go back to the law, to go back to these do's and don'ts and all those kind of things. But true Christians live in the future tense, anticipating the return of their Savior. It's this anticipation of the coming of Christ that motivates the believer, and it, it's what gives tremendous energy and transformational power of a future hope. Hebrews says, because Abraham looked for a city, he was content to live in a tent. Because Moses looked for the rewards of heaven, he was willing to forsake the treasure of the earth. And because of the joy that was set before him, Jesus was willing to go to the cross. And the fact that Jesus is returning is a powerful motivation for Christian living and dedicated service today. John wrote in 1 John 3, 3, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. The citizen of heaven living on earth can overcome discouragement, can overcome pain, live through pain, because he or she knows that one day the Lord is going to return. 
We faithfully keep on doing our job lest the Lord return and find us disobedient. We anticipate the blessings that are to come. doesn't mean that we ignore daily obligations and go up on a hill someplace and wait for Jesus to come back, but it does mean that we are governed how we live by what Christ will do in the future. And then talk about the great motivator for pressing on. We will receive glorified bodies. Raise your hand if you're content with the thing you live in now. (laughs) And I don't mean that disparagingly (laughs) because we're all there. Verse 21 of Philippians chapter 3 tells us what the Lord Jesus Christ will do. He is the one who will transform the body of our humble estate into the conformity with the body of his glory. Turn to the fifth chapter of 2 Corinthians for a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We've read these verses before. They are meaningful to us, but we need to be reminded about the body that we have to look forward to. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. And Paul begins by referring to our earthly bodies as a tent. A tent is a temporary housing. A tent wears out. The tent is not meant to be permanent, but that's what we got for now. Verse 1 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, or our body is torn down, We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Our earthly bodies, this tent, is not suited for the glories of heaven. It's not intended to be. As long as we are in this body, we cannot experience the glories of heaven. We need that house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So now we groan, we hurt, we feel it giving out. We desire our eternal glorified bodies. Verse 3. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan being burdened. Because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, always being of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. And then Paul in verse 9 hits on our motivation. What is it that we can get up when we get knocked down? What is it we can turn around when we are going the wrong way? Therefore, because of all of this, we're looking forward to a glorified body that's going to experience the glories of heaven. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. We run the race in a way that is pleasing to the Lord because it is our ambition, what lies ahead, our motivation. What a tremendous thing to look forward to. One of the best books written about heaven is Johnny Erickson Tata's book, Heaven, Your Real Home. And as you probably know, on account of a diving accident, Johnny has been a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the shoulders down, 
since 1967. Boy, what a long time ago. She's longing for her building from God, that house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, her glorified body which will run and leap and praise God. And Johnny has written what I believe is one of the best biblical studies on heaven and what it will be like and what, it will, what we will experience in heaven. But also in her book, particularly in the first few chapters, she talks about the past that she had to get past. The past as it might have been without the accident. And she has to get past her present hurts and her disabilities caused by her past. She has to learn, as we all do in running the race, even though she can't run physically, how to look forward. How she has to learn to run the race in a wheelchair, totally dependent upon somebody else to push that wheelchair, to feed her, to help her in any way possibility. She had to break the power of the past. And she wrote, I know what it's like to grab hold of memories, like bricks, and build a dike against them. When I was first paralyzed in 1967 and still new to this eternity thing as a young Christian, heaven was in no way my home. I was less interested in looking forward to a glorified body and more interested in turning back the clock to days when my body worked. Time was also an enemy in that it kept putting more distance between the past on my feet and the present in my wheelchair. The only way I could slow down the weeks and months was to dive into my memories. I couldn't do much but listen to the radio or records. I laid on the striker fame and frame in the intensive care unit and tuned into Diana Ross moaning about a lost love or Glenn Campbell crooning about an old flame wandering on the back roads of his memory. The Beatles were also popular then. I'd fight back the tears when they'd sing of yesterday when trouble seemed so far away. Then there was Joni Mitchell. Folk music still lingered in the late 60s and I found refuge in their restless songs about the past. Her music evoked a more powerful and fundamental nostalgia than pining for a lost love or a trouble-free yesterday. Joni Mitchell and thousands like her are looking for something incalculably precious they've lost, something they've got to get back to. They may mistake it for the nostalgia of the 60s or the 50s. They may mistake it for childhood memory, a lost love, or yesterday when one's trouble seemed so far away, but it's much more than that. It's a nostalgia not for the innocence of youth, but for the innocence of humanity. We've got to get ourselves back to the garden. A lost world groans because it's Eden where we lost not just our youth, but our identity. Most people have it backward. Unlike those who don't believe in God, our road is not back to the Garden of Eden, but forward. One should never look over one's shoulder on the road of hope. In Genesis, God sent the seraphim with the flaming sword to bar Adam and Eve from returning to Eden once they had fallen. The road to God lies ahead, east of Eden, through the world of time and history, struggle and suffering and death. Ejected from Eden's eastern gate, we travel through and around the world, from west to east, forever seeking the rising sun. And then she puts the rising sun, S-O-N, after that. And find him standing at the western gate, saying, I am the door. 
Johnny knows the importance of forgetting what lies ahead and reaching forward to, or forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. And she is one particular example of people we can scope out and learn and follow from their example. Later in the book, she writes about her suffering and what it will mean to be in heaven. And she says, In a way, I wish I could take to heaven my old, tattered, Everest and Jennings wheelchair. I would point to the empty seat and say, Lord, for decades, decades I was paralyzed in this chair, but it showed me how paralyzed you must have felt to be nailed to your cross. My limitations taught me something about the limitations you endured when you laid aside your robe of state and put on the indignity of human flesh. At that point, with my strong and beautiful glorified body, I might sit in it, rub the armrest with my hands, look up at Jesus, and add, the weaker I felt in this chair, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned, the more I discovered how strong you are. Thank you, Jesus, for learning obedience in your suffering. You gave me grace to learn obedience in mine. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the example of Johnny Erickson Tata, who has so much more to look forward to, in a sense, with her glorified body than, than even we do, Lord. But, but from her example of Christian living and her example of looking forward to what is ahead, what you have for each one of us in Jesus Christ, Father. Lord, whatever the baggage is that uh, we may have brought into this room this morning, the baggage of past thoughts, the baggage of past hurts, the baggage of past failures, the baggage of past wrongdoings or the baggage of what others have done to us. Father, right now, we each take whatever those things that you have brought to our mind. And in the same way that Hezekiah went into the temple of God with that threatening letter from Sennacherib, king of Assyria, who was going to kill them, and Hezekiah, Hezekiah just laid it out before you in the temple, Lord. We take whatever it is that's holding us back, whatever we're looking back to, and Father, we lay that at your feet. Give us the strength. Give us the power through your Holy Spirit to be able to lay it down here, Lord. And give us the strength not to pick it up again. Give us the strength not to kick it around. Give us the strength to just move forward and leave it. And for this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of invitation.